flight that came into Seattle. baggage handling area, and as one of the bags came off, unfortunately, there was a dog in it, and the dog had died. The baggage handler felt betrayal, and this is not something you want to tell the owner, and so uh, he decided maybe what they would do is sort of tell the owner that the dog got misplaced, lost, got shipped to the wrong place, and they'd try to find one that looked just like the dog, and so that's what they did. They told the owner, give us a day or two. And uh, we'll track down, and we'll, we'll have your dog. We're very sorry. You know, just all the apologies. And went and, and spared no expense, really, to find the dog that matched almost exactly. I mean, not impossible to be exact, but they thought, hopefully, after a couple of days, the owner will be so relieved to see his dog, he won't mind. And they called and said, you can come to the airport now and pick up your dog in the morning at the airport. And they, they brought out the dog. And as soon as he saw it, he said, that's not my dog. Sir, it really is. It's, it's your dog. Uh, you know, the, the, all the markings, it's the case, it's all the, the right tags. You've got your papers. It, it matches. It's your dog. So, sir, that is not, that is definitely not my dog. Sir, at least, why don't you let the dog out of the crate? You can pet it. I'm sure you'll find it. That is not my dog. Sir, how can you be so sure? Well, my dog was dead, and I shipped him here to be buried. a preacher story, which means I can't be sure if it's actually true. I give you that disclaimer because what I'm about to say next is not a preacher story. It's actually really true. And that is Jesus rose from the grave. We know in our experience how death works. Unfortunately, some of us have very close experiences, very recent experiences with losing someone. We know how that works. And, and yes, I understand that the thought of a resurrection defies all human logic. It just doesn't make sense. But I want you to know, just like I said at the beach, I want to say it here. I stand before you saying, I believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why I do what I do. That's why we're here today. And without that truth, without that reality, we are all wasting our time. Not just because I said it, by the way. The Bible itself, Paul, says it in 1 Corinthians 15, that we would be pitiful if we got here together over something that never happened. But we have a problem. It's the same problem in many ways they had back then. And that's what do you do with an empty tomb? How do you explain it away? How do you deal with that? In fact, a few weeks ago, I mentioned the movie Risen. It's been in theaters. I wish it was still down here. I didn't get a chance to see it. I know some of you did. Um, and it's, it's actually an interesting movie. It's the story of the resurrection of Jesus told from the perspective of a Roman soldier who's assigned with finding the body. I actually have a, a, a clip that kind of sets us up today. So whenever you guys are ready up in the booth, let's uh, watch this together. ever since. We must find a body. It's a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to know you have to do. Uh, but what we see in Scripture, what we see in the Bible from these eyewitnesses to the events a couple of thousand years ago is that there was no body. There was no person in the tomb. 
and the body doesn't show up, at least not dead. In fact, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 2, or excuse me, 24, verse 6, we see kind of the central message of the resurrection. When the ladies, when the women go to the tomb that first Easter morning looking for the body, they hear this, He is not here. He has risen. What an incredible message. What an incredible thought that that would be the case. And not only did they get that message there, but but later on, this is in John chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples. And Scripture tells us that when he appeared here, there, this is what happened. One, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What an incredible moment that must have meant. Imagine if you are one of those disciples. Imagine if you are Peter, who had just days previous denied even knowing Jesus. And then he's standing in front of you and saying, peace be with you. Imagine another account of, I think I've mentioned this before, my favorite disciple, Doubting Thomas. That's what we know him as. Good old Doubting Thomas who said, I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I reach out and touch with my hands the wounds in his hands and in his side. And Jesus appeared and answered those questions. He could truly leave them peace. He could truly say to them, peace be with you, because they had seen the evidence. But like I said, the Bible's pretty clear. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 how important the resurrection is. He says in verse 14, and then again later in verse 17, just how key this is. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In that same passage, he says, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. to the resurrection would say. It is that key. It is that important. Without the resurrection, why bother? In fact, there are many in history who have undertaken to try to look at the events of this and mostly to explain it away. And and I just wanted to, you may have heard some of these theories before, but there are several theories, like scholars came up with these, people that earn a living in academia, that are professors and others that say, we need to explain what happened with the crucifixion and the resurrection to somehow deal with the fact that there is no body. And this is what they come up with. One of them is called the swoon theory. Have you heard of the swoon theory? Maybe you have. The swoon theory basically says this, Jesus didn't really die. He just sort of passed out on the cross. He just went into a semi-coma, and they thought he was dead. And when they took him off the cross and they wrapped him in those spices, the aroma of the spices, and when they put him in the cave, in the tomb, the coolness of the air in the tomb woke him up. And he woke up and came out of the tomb. So he never really died, so he couldn't rise again. Interesting theory. few problems. One, what happened to him in the process of going to the tomb is remarkable. The, not just the crucifixion, but all that he went through up to that point. The beatings, 
and, and the Roman torture they put him through. In fact, there, there are places where it says he can't even recognize Jesus. He's been so marred by what he's been through. I mentioned on Friday night there's actually a, a, an AMA journal article that details the medical look, a medical look at crucifixion, at what Jesus went through and the floggings and the crucifixion and all. And not only that, but, but you know, they took a spear and they shoved it in his side. So whatever life was left in him, that would have not only punctured a lung, but caused that to be the end. And, and then they took him down. That, that spice wrap they put on him, done properly, you know, it weighs almost 75 pounds. Now, the men did it, though, like we said earlier, they probably did it wrong. So that's why the ladies showed up on Easter to fix the, ro- the problem. But let's just give the men credit. Let's give them half credit. Can the men get a 50%? So 37 and a half pounds of spice wrapped around the body. That's, you know, in a semi-coma. How is he going to roll away the stone? He comes out of this, this state, this, this weakened state, and Jesus from the inside is going to roll. Oh, and by the way, there were Roman guards placed outside, so he's got to overpower them. And not too long later, he's on the road to Emmaus, which is at least a seven-mile walk for a guy who was without food and water for those three days in the tomb and already exerted himself to roll away the stone and beat up the guards. Now he's got to walk seven miles. Makes perfect sense. But that's what one scholar resorted to to try to say that's not how it happened. Now, there's another theory. It's called the hallucination theory. There are a lot of theories we don't have all day. Well, I do. But you don't. The hallucination theory says this, that when the people saw Jesus, they just made it up. They had, they had a mass hallucination, and that's what they saw. So it would be like me saying to you, hey, I want to start my sermon today by talking about that dream we had last night. You remember it, right? Because we all had the same dream. That would, I mean, how, how often does that happen? thinking behind the hallucination theory is that you have to be anticipating the same thing. You have to be expecting something's going to happen. So all of you together would be naturally expecting Jesus would rise from the dead. Except as you read the account in Scripture of the eyewitnesses, nobody is expecting him to rise from the dead. The women go to the tomb, as we already said, to deal with the dead body that needs to be prepared properly for burial. The disciples have gone into hiding. They're scared. They're they're out somewhere hoping they're not arrested next. It it just doesn't make sense. And and if we expect, I mean, if we thought they were expecting it, and I, I love this picture, shouldn't the disciples all be on that first Easter morning outside the tomb holding hands, singing Kumbaya, and then right as the sun comes up, start counting down? Nine, eight, seven. He's coming. Six, five. They're not there. They weren't expecting him to rise again. They were sure it was over. They thought all of their hopes and dreams had been squashed. So it doesn't make sense practically that when he appears to 500 people at once, they all have the same hallucination. And it also doesn't make sense they hallucinate that at all because nobody thought that was what was going to happen. A third theory is that they went to the wrong tomb. Like this morning, you got up early. I won't you know, get up ridiculously early. It's like you went to the wrong sunrise. 
You meant to go to Penny Camp Park, but you went to Harry Harris. You meant to go to Penny Camp Park, you went up to, what's the one, uh, Jack and Johnson. You meant to go to Penny Camp for the sunrise service, you went, what's another park? I don't know. The same, that's a good one. Well, you would get there, you'd probably go, oh wait, this is the wrong place. I need to go to the right place, or just hang around for whatever happens. Right, there's the wrong tomb. Here's the biggest problem with the wrong tomb theory. They went to the wrong tomb, so that's why it was empty. All they had to do, if you were the Jewish leaders or the Romans or whoever wanted to shut the disciples up, is say, let me show you the proper tomb, the right tomb. See, there it is, and look, he's still there. Now leave us alone. But they couldn't point to the right tomb because they went to the right tomb, and it was empty. So these are things that people have said, scholars trying to say, we can't buy the resurrection. Another one that you saw referenced in that that movie clip and is also in Scripture is that the disciples stole the body, which is an interesting theory. It sort of makes some sense, except why would the disciples steal the body? They would steal it because they wanted to keep this whole Jesus movement going. So you're saying that what they would do when their leader was arrested, when their leader was executed, And when they went into hiding because they were afraid they were next, is that then they would decide, no, we're going to go take the body. They wouldn't die for him when he was alive. Why in the world would they risk their life for him after he was dead? That doesn't really add up. And not only that, but it doesn't make sense to steal the body because in their mind, game is over. The Messiah died. Messiahs don't die. You know, Jesus wasn't the first that had claimed to be Messiah. There were others that came along, and some of the nation of Israel got behind them. They, they started some rebellions along the way. One that wasn't too many years before Jesus was in that area was the Maccabean Revolt. There's uh, In the Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees tell that story. It's actually a fascinating story. If I'm not mistaken, that's where the uh, uh, celebration of Hanukkah comes out of those events around that. But what happens to squash the Maccabean revolt? Revolt? I don't think I'm getting my acronyms mixed up today. They kill the leaders. And when the leaders are dead, the revolt is dead. So Jesus is the leader. And he said things in his life like, I am the resurrection and the life. Which is great. Until he died. He said, I am the Son of God, which sounds good and you're all over it, until he loses all credibility because he's dead. All of these things that they were counting on suddenly seemed pointless because Jesus had died. They missed the point, we might just say, from our perspective, but for them, there was no incentive. It didn't make sense to try to steal the body. In fact, Scripture records that the, the religious leaders had more faith in Jesus' followers than they did. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, it, it tells us what, what they planned. You saw a little bit of it hinted at in that verse. I think we have those up here on the screen. And that says, When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. Why did they do that? Telling them, you're to say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. They want to kind of Spread that rumor. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In fact, earlier, in a different part, it tells us that they asked 
set the guard for three days. And she saw him and waited for three days. Then Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. The religious leaders seemed to get it more than his followers. But that whole idea that that they stole the body also kind of loses some some oomph when you consider of his disciples, all but one were martyred for their faith. Tortured, arrested, imprisoned, and ultimately killed. John was the one, and he ended his life in exile, most likely. All of them, would they do that? Would they die for what they knew was a lie? That they had the body hidden away from them? I don't think so. People die for things, but it's usually because they really, really, really believed in it. And the disciples, I think, really turn tail and run at the first sign of difficulty. All, and that, those are just four different theories that are thrown out there, but, but ultimately it comes down to the point, people throughout history have tried to say, this doesn't add up, and we're going to try to put ideas out there to discredit the movement, the, the idea that Jesus is risen. But time and time and time again, when people try, they, found, they find out because it just so happens to be true. There are many, in that, some that have undertaken the past to actually disprove the resurrection. One is Sir Lionel Lockwood, who, I, as I understand, as I read, is considered one of the most successful attorneys. He won 245 successive murder, murder acquittals. And he set out with his legal mind to try to disprove the resurrection. And he came up with this conclusion. I say unequivocally, that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Is that true or not? That's pretty pretty blatant, isn't it? He's not leaving a lot of, of wiggle room there. One of my favorites that I like to read is a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. I used at the beach this morning a, a section from his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell started out as a non-believer, as an atheist sort, determined to disprove who Jesus was, the Bible, the resurrection. And at the end of the story, having considered the evidence, he decided he couldn't disprove it, he had to believe it. And he became a Christian and an apologist who writes books that say, hey, consider, that's the title, right, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, consider this evidence and see if you don't come to the same conclusion I do. Less, excuse me, Lee Strobel is, is another more modern-day writer. He was, a, I believe, with the Chicago Tribune, if I'm not mistaken, a journalist who, for the same, in the same way, undertook to disprove who Jesus was, the events of his life, the Bible, and the resurrection. And he came to the same conclusion McDowell did, that he couldn't disprove it. He had to believe it. And now he's writing books like The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ, all of these books that are out now saying, I've considered the evidence, and guess what? It's pretty compelling. I have to believe it. I have to go there. And maybe one of the factors of the evidence comes from those disciples. They don't look good in parts of the story. But something happens that changes everything. Something happens that brings them out of hiding. 
that brings them out emboldened to share this thing that they've seen. You see, and that's what the, the gospel really boils down to. These disciples, when they go out and share the message of Christ, they don't go out and say, hey, let us tell you about Jesus because he died on a cross. Now, the cross is the symbol of churches everywhere. We've talked about that before, and some of you may be aware that the cross is pretty important. But that wasn't their message only. That was part of their message, but that a lot of people died on crosses. They didn't go out and say, we need to tell you about Jesus because you wouldn't believe the things he said. And he said some remarkable things. He was an incredible teacher. Even religions that aren't Christian would hold Jesus up as a great moral teacher. But that wasn't the message of the disciples. It wasn't like, you've got to listen to this teaching. You've got to listen to what he said. Oh, here's a tape. Here's a CD. Subscribe to Jesus' podcast. It'll be great. No, their message was simple. He was dead, and then he was alive. He was killed by Rome, crucified, buried in the tomb, and then he rose again. And we can't get past that. We can't do anything but choose to believe and follow him because of that. I mean, we see those first moments after the death of Jesus when they're in hiding. We see Peter fishing again. That's what he did before Jesus came along and said, follow me. Peter was out fishing. And and then in John chapter 20 or 21, guess what Peter's doing? This is an easy question. Okay, good. Right? They're fishing. And Jesus tells him to cast the nets on the other side. Sounds familiar, Peter. Yes. And he comes in. Actually, doesn't come in on the boat. He hops out of the boat because he recognizes now that's Jesus. And everything changes for him. And on and on and on we could go about these people who Jesus appeared to and who Jesus proved that he was alive. And Paul, as we, as we look into his writings, is a, is a remarkable person in that he was determined to squash the people, the followers of Jesus. That was his goal. He oversaw, in a, in a way, the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He held cloaks while they stoned him to death. He went from city to city seeking out the uh, Christians in the name of the temple with their authority to, to arrest them, to persecute them, to shut them up. And then his life changes when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he goes from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest church planter there ever was, traveling all over the known world, telling people. I mean, he sums up his message for us succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I deliver, I, I passed on what I received, that Christ Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and that he appeared at one point to 500 people at once, some of whom are still alive, as if to challenge anybody who doubted to go talk to them because they could vouch for what they saw. A remarkable thing. And Acts chapter 1, verse 3, kind of one of those early verses of the book of Acts that we just sort of skip over, but this is what Scripture tells us. It says in Acts 1, verse 3, after his suffering, this is Jesus it's talking about, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So it wasn't like they had any doubt. He was intent to show them it was real, it was true, it was something that they could believe in, and it changed their lives. So why do we get together as a church? Why do we get together at some ungodly hour on the beach? Okay, it wasn't that important. 
had to get up early to get there. Why do we come to a building like this? The building's all up and down our chain of islands and all over the world. Not because Jesus is a great teacher. Not because we could learn some things from him, though we can. Not because in his life he set a good example, which he did. We come because, bottom line, he was dead, and now he's alive. Just like we sing in that song, Amazing Grace, I was lost, but now I'm found. In Jesus we find life and hope and salvation. It makes all the difference in the world that our Savior, Jesus, lived a sinless life and then died not for his own sin, but for my sin on the cross. And having paid the penalty for those sins, rose again on the third day and invites whosoever will to believe in him and to receive the gift of salvation. That's why we're here. But it all hinges on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Without the resurrection, let's sell this three acres of property and split the proceeds. Because that would be maybe slightly legal, but besides that, But besides that, that's what we should do. Forget about this. In fact, I think Scripture gives you permission. Investigate for yourself the claims of Jesus as it regards his resurrection. And if you decide that he did not rise from the grave, do anything else but this. Because Paul says, if we do this and he's still dead, we have put him to death. We've missed it entirely. So that's my challenge to you. Like these people I've mentioned, like Sir Lionel Lefty or, or, or Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell or any of the others, dig into yourself. See the evidence. Consider what is out there for this event in history. And if you come to the conclusion that it didn't happen, you have my blessing, if that's where you're going to go. You do whatever. Never come back to church again and forget all about it. But, if you investigate, and like so many others, you determine, yes, he was alive, and now he was dead, and now he is alive, then I, I would think you have no choice. celebrate today was going to happen. But when they found him, things were different. And I would suggest to you, if you will look honestly into the evidence, it confirms what you think. Because I believe Jesus is your Savior, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word that became flesh, God, I believe he 
died on the cross. Not swooned or, or just kind of passed out or whatever, but, but died all the way dead. I believe they put him in a tomb and rolled a stone in front of it and set a Roman guard out in front of it just to squash any possible danger. And I believe in spite of all those precautions, on Easter morning, a couple of thousand years ago, the stone was rolled away and he was alive. And because of that, I can know forgiveness. I can know forgiveness. I can know God in my heart. And I can have the hope that one day, though like all of us, we face the reality of death, one day I too might rise again. Might be resurrected to see Jesus face to face. And have the hope of eternity. And as I read at the beginning of the service, His power at work in me to deal with the mess that His life has been in my life. That's a pretty compelling evidence. It's one I've given my life to. sent your one and only Son. That He died on the cross, that He rose again, that He's seated at your right hand, making intercession for us even today. I thank You that You make the offer that whosoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And Father, today as we've gathered and we've talked for a few minutes about the reality dedicate our lives to a God who lived and died for us in a family home. Whether it be to take a, a, a fresh look at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Or whether it be for the first time to commit fully to the one who died and rose again. Lord, in these moments, may we seek you. May we hear your voice calling. And may we respond.